Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our sermon text this morning is found in the Lord's Prayer. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the text that we have for this morning is, Our Father who art in heaven, and this week we'll be studying the first of the six or seven petitions, requests in the prayer, and that is the request, hallowed be your name. Uh, What does hallowed mean? Hallowed means holy be your name. What does holy mean? Holy mean, holy means set apart. Um, So many of the words in scripture, Max was talking, Pastor Max was talking about this the other day. They're sort of scripture words that lose their meaning. We're so used to hearing them, and holy is one of those words. And it helps me to think uh, sometimes of holiness as being peculiar. So you can think, for instance, of God's holy people being God's peculiar people, where the word peculiar means set apart, different. And that's one of the, uh, it's one of the greatest problems we face today is that we're very resistant to being peculiar and different and set apart from worldlings, from those who do not know God. And so we minimize the bondage that they are in. We minimize the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit to give them freedom from the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. But we also minimize the calling that we have to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And this resistance to being holy and to making God's name be holy is especially clear in this first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed, holy, set apart, is your name. When I go through the Lord's Prayer, I follow Thomas Watson's wonderful book. If you've never looked at Thomas Watson, uh, he has a book on the Beatitudes and a book on the Ten Commandments, a book on uh, the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter, and a book on the Lord's Prayer. And it's kind of like reading Matthew Henry. You know, you have two versions of Matthew Henry on the web that you can get. One is the concise, and the other is the unconcise, which means the unabridged, the full version. And sometimes it's overwhelming to read Matthew, uh, excuse me, Thomas Watson. But Thomas Watson says on this petition, he's an old Puritan, by the way, if you don't know who he is. He says, and we are to desire God's name to be sanctified. Uh, What is sanctified? To be, if you will, holified, made holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified. We are to desire God's name to be sanctified even before we desire our daily food. Now that's hard, isn't it? If we're honest, we realize that even when we eat, we're impatient with prayer because we're so hungry that a lot of times we're tempted to dispense with prayer because we desire food more than we desire that God's name is glorified, is made holy. 
And we are to desire God's name to be sanctified even before we desire our daily food. The glorification of our God is to be, before anything else, our highest desire. It is the work of all the creatures in heaven to eternally praise his holy name, singing. I've often said that I don't know how I could preach and how we could worship without our musicians leading us in songs. And what people that aren't in our church don't understand is that God has blessed us with new songs. And uh, most people live just with the old songs and cling to them desperately. But our song should always be, our heart should always be making new songs to God, and of course, especially our musicians. Well, we read about what heaven will be like in Revelation 4, that God will be eternally praised, his holy name. It says in Revelation 4, beginning with verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And so this is the work of heaven. And so, in a sense, when all the other petitions of the Lord's Prayer have passed away, this one will not have passed away because this petition will remain forever and ever the chief occupation of those men and women who bear the image of God and have been purchased with the blood of Christ. Now, what's in a name? I want us to think about names for just a couple minutes, because names today are almost inconsequential. If you read the Bible and listen to it carefully, you will realize that names are treated very, very specially in Scripture. Um, but we have a sort of a flippant, haphazard approach to names. Um, you know, we, we go through books of names, and uh, for most people, the sound of the name and which actress has it is more how they name their children than by faith calling God to make this child say, for instance, his name is Faithful. You think of all the names in uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Or... So anyhow, uh, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was interesting recently when Harry and Meghan were going through their uh, exit from British royalty or some kind of exit. Um, one of the things that was announced is that they would no longer be allowed to use His Royal Highness titles, HRH titles. Well, we kind of think that's not American anyhow to have titles of royalty, right? I mean, we, we're very democratic. And, uh, and, it, and to be very democratic reaches down to even young children, where young children uh, will refer to other people in the church, for instance, as Tim or Max or Jody or Stephen, and will not dignify them by saying Pastor Jody or Pastor Max. Um, really, it's only in the courts anymore that we have honor given. And really, 
it's it's pretty much because it's only in the courts that we have authority anymore. Uh, and even that is being attenuated unbelievably. And so in the courts, uh, when the judge walks in, all rise. And when you address the court, you say, Your Honor. But other than that, names don't mean much to us. But names in biblical times had the utmost significance. You think about how Abram became Abraham. So Abram means father of Aram. Abraham means father of all. And then Sarai became Sarah. Sarai is an individualistic, my princess, but Sarah is the princess. And so both Abraham or Abram and Sarai were renamed with names that made them uh, universal father and universal princess. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter, the stone or the rock, all right? Now, turning to the name of God, the name of God in the Old Testament, we see it's of the utmost, the highest significance. In Deuteronomy 28, we read, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name. Mm -hmm. the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues. We, we don't want this present plague of coronavirus to be a lasting plague, do we? Well, we read here that God punishes the abuse of his name. In Psalm 86, verse 1, the prayer is this, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Hmm. Now, what is meant by God's name? Well, God's name is God's being. I am that I am. It is God's essence. When the psalmist writes the name of the God of Jacob, defend thee, he's referring not to the name, but to God himself, to his essence. He's, it's as if he says, the God of Jacob, defend you. Also, what is meant by God's name is everything else by which God may be known. So, for instance, God's titles in Psalm 83, fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, one of the problems that we have in hearing this is when we hear, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord. Well, we hear the Lord, and what we think of is in the book of Acts that it's proclaimed that Jesus, this Jesus whom you killed, is God has made him Lord over all. And so we think of Lord in terms of authority. Now, it's not bad for us to do that. But in the Old Testament, when you look in your Bibles and you see that this word Lord, this name Lord, is in upper caps or small caps, and some are all capital letters, 
um, it's actually a placeholder for a Jewish uh, construction that it can be roughly approximated by saying Yahweh. And so what you need to understand is that when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it is not the word God in languages today. It is the specific name that God revealed himself through to the Israelites, his specific people. So this is, you know, some families refer to their dad as Papa, or they have some pet name. In our family, my mother's name was not mother or mom. We never called her that. We always called her Mud, M-U-D. I suspect it came from one of the little kids not being able to say mom, and he said Mud, and it stuck. So it was the unique personal name that we had for my mother. And a lot of families have this for individual children. Well, this word Lord in the Old Testament is the specific personal intimate name that God revealed to his personal people, the Israelites, that they were to call him. And so when you read in the Old Testament, let your name, the name of the Lord be glorified, be honored. When you see the language about Lord, this is, and it might help you sometimes, to say it in Hebrew, Yahweh. We don't know exactly how it's to be said. The Jews will not say it because they don't want to take it in name. They honor it. And so I was reading Jewish commentary earlier today, and they, they, they don't even write out the name of God. They just put the first letter in, and then they put blank spaces after it. And so the name of God, when it says, Lord, uh, that they may seek your name, O Lord, that they may seek your name, O Yahweh. And so it is God's titles, and one of them is Yahweh. It is his character or his attributes. Um, <clears throat> for instance, uh, it's very interesting in Exodus 34, 14, God says to his people, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord. So again, that's that Hebrew word Yahweh. So let me read it. For you shall not worship any other God for Yahweh, whose name is, well, he just gave his name Yahweh. But no, that's not what it says. It says for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And so God's perfections, his attributes We can speak to God as jealous. Jealous, he says, is his name. It's very interesting to think that way. Jealousy is usually not used positively in the English language today. But it's a very positive name of God, God whose name is jealous. It can also be God's ordinances and his works. Uh, in other words, the name of God can be the word of God. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And so when we glorify the word of the Lord, we glorify God. And then God's works. Now, we all love Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But we don't really think of it so much as, uh, as uh, a psalm meditating on the glory of the name of God, we think of it more as uh, 
a psalm that when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. And so it's kind of, you know, it's close to sort of an environmentalist anthem among conservative Christians. You know, if anybody says to us, well, you know, you really don't have a high view of creation and you don't want to take care of the environment. And we immediately think when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. And so this is a beautiful psalm celebrating the creative work of God and, and the cosmos, the, the stars, the sky, the moon. But here's how this Psalm 8 begins and ends. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, all the beauty of creation is glorifying the name of God. And then it ends this way, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is how it starts. This is how the, the psalm ends. You know, up in Wisconsin, I'd have men say to me that they didn't go to church because they could worship God just as well out in nature, you know. And so they'd say when they were hunting in deer sea, they were worshiping God. And, and, you know, it was as if the people of God's voices joined together in prayer and worship Singing the name of Jesus, singing the name of God, is corrupt, whereas this man alone, with himself and a gun, out in the woods, is able to worship God in an innocent state, you know, with a hat tip to, uh, to Rousseau, right? You know, the state of nature and innocence, supposedly. And so, the works of creation... Um, are very much uh, the name of God. And that's why this Psalm 8 begins and ends with how majestic is your name in all the earth. We have another Psalm 145. Of course, you go through the Psalms, you'll see this again. In Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Remember I said that this is work that will take us through eternity. He says, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. And then this psalm ends, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Yeah. Now again, what is meant by the name of God? By hallowed be thy name. Well, another thing when we glorify the name of God and make it holy, we are making his power holy. And so, for instance, one of the very frequently quoted texts is uh, where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. It's very interesting that this particular promise of Jesus is clung to so often by us today, I mean, you can, you, it's ubiquitous. You can hear it everywhere. And yet almost never do people recognize that this is precisely in the context of Jesus saying that his authority is in the church and her officers when they discipline people in the church. And so what he's saying is when you discipline somebody, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. One of the ways that we know that we're rebellious people is how frequently people who have vowed to submit to the elders of the church, instead of submitting when they're found in sin, 
they stiff arm the elders and they refuse to show up when the elders want to talk to them. And what they forget is that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, Jesus is present also. And God has made this Jesus the Lord of all creation. Then Jesus uh, had such power that the apostles, when they were healing people, they would say, in the name of Jesus, I command you. (laughs) And so again, think of the power of the name of Jesus. And then, of course, this wonderful statement from Philippians. He'd be given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. How then are we to make holy God's name? Well, first of all, we make it holy, we set it apart, we sanctify by setting it apart from a common to a sacred use. Now, did you just hear me sigh? I have said this to you time after time, and it doesn't seem to get through your thick heads. I hope you're happy to see that your that your pastor Tim is back, right? So soften up and listen to me carefully. I remember when I was a young man, probably 18, 19 years old, and I said, geez. And my father looked at me and he said, do not say that. You are saying Jesus. And I never forgot it. Jeez is what is called a minced oath. It's the way that we take God's name in vain while acting as if we're not taking God's name in vain. Golly is God, let alone, oh God, which you hear all the time. Oh, Jesus, you hear all the time. Now, you may say that in your home you don't do this, that you don't do this because you sanctify God's name, you make his name holy. But you know what you do do is you tell jokes using God's name. God was in heaven and Peter was at the gate and God said to Peter. Or you use Jesus' name as a joke. The name Jesus is Jesus. God is God. And we make God's name holy. Hallowed be thy name. We make it holy by protecting it from being used in any, any common way. We keep his name from being abused. We treat it with great respect and reverence. We hold God's name up in the world, calling all men and women to acknowledge it and to bow down before it and worship it, and the one to whom it belongs. And so really you could refer to evangelism as the work Christians do to call men and women and boys and girls to make God's name holy. Excuse me a second.
I want to say something else about this because one of the most frequent ways that we're going to run into people trashing the name of God, dissing God, disrespecting God, one of the most common ways we're going to run into people trashing God is by them using the name of God, eh, yeah, for jokes and, and as curse words. And that should pierce our hearts. But another way is that people will say that God is a she, and you'll hear them praying to God as she. You'll hear them speaking of God as she. And if you confront them about it, you say, no, God is not a she, God is a father. They'll say, well, God's a spirit. And in that connection, I was very interested. I'm reading through the Gospel of John right now. And if you look at John 4, um, you remember the scene where the Samaritan woman comes to the well, and Jesus is talking to her there. And Jesus says to her, um, if you knew the gift of, well, let me back up a couple verses, starting with verse 7 of John chapter 4. It says, a woman, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, okay? And Jesus uh, answered and said to her, I'm skipping a couple verses, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I wonder what living water tastes like. Do you know what living water tastes like? She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And then listen to what she says here. She says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Mm -hmm. Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Now, I'm skipping down a ways. They have back and forth conversation. Jesus asks her to go call her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, eh, uh, you can read it for yourself. And then the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says this again, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now, Get this, twice now, in her conversation with Jesus, she's referred to her father Jacob and her fathers. And so at this point, Jesus, he hears her. He knows the authority claim that she's making by referring to her father Jacob and her fathers, our fathers, she's making the claim. And so he says to her, in verse 21, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, Jesus is taking her claims of authority, Father Jacob and our fathers, and he's trumping them by throwing down the, the Father card. Okay, and then he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then this, 
But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the reason I'm reading this to you is that the feminists, women who hate men, women who hate motherhood, women who wish they could rid themselves of fatherhood, women who wish they could have no influence of any man in their lives, will call God she. And then if you speak to them about it, they'll say, well, God's spirit. But what you notice here again and again, Jesus says the Father, and then precisely in that context says, he is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. In other words, there is absolutely no conflict between worshiping the Father and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. As a matter of fact, the truth is that you are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth until you name him Father. Because God is the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And so this is one of the most frequent ways that you are going to set apart the name of God from a common, from a unholy, from a trampled upon and disnamed, is to confess that God is Father and to pray to him that way. Now, we also uh, make his name holy when we gather for worship, and we use his name in worship. We use his name in prayer. One of the things that I want to exhort you to do is pray in the name of Jesus. This is a biblical command. And so when we pray, we should not just end our prayers with uh, amen, but we should end our prayers making it clear that we come to the Father through the Son. And that's why Christians have always prayed in the name of Jesus, amen. We address God. We say, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. But then at the end of the prayer, we say, in Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus is the reason that we can come, dirty as we are, into the presence of the Holy God and make our appeals, okay? We make God's name holy when he holds the chief position in our thoughts. We make his name holy when we trust in him rather than anything else for our security. And what a wonderful psalm this is right now, Psalm 20, as we look at coronavirus and the military getting involved and, you know, the South China Sea and rumors of war and all of the, all of the things there are to be afraid of. In Psalm 20, it says, we will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. And then these precious verses, some boast in chariots and some in horses, some boast in ballistic missiles and fighter jets and submarines and, you know, special ops. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen but we have risen and stood upright.
And so we sing his praises. We trust in his name. We defend the honor of his name. And we give him all the glory. We give it to God. People praise us. You know, I know that you can make the case that it's hackneyed and insincere and hypocritical, but I love it. When athletes who score a goal or do a, a good feat of some sort or another, they point to God. How about Herod? Did he point to God? In Acts 12, we read, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man! And then we're told immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. God, his name is jealous. And so God's people say in Psalm 115:1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. And so my mouth, Psalm 71.8, is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Psalm 149.5 and 6, let the godly ones exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. One thing uh, that Watson points out is that we make God's name holy. We sanctify God's name when we sympathize with God, he uses as an example Moses coming down the mountain and seeing the orgy of idolatry at the bottom of the mountain. And then this verse in Exodus 32, 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. What's the point? Well, the point is we make God's name holy. We sanctify God's name when we sympathize with him and when we are angry at his name being abused by his people. Earlier in the service, uh, we had the reading by Jody of Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, uh, where Isaiah, seeing the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I long live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of hosts. Um. You remember that it says that one of the seraphim came to him with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with the tongs, after he said, Well, is man. He touched, Isaiah says, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for me? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And so really, um, dear brothers and sisters, it is hard for us being men and women and boys and girls of unclean lips. And well, if you don't know you have unclean lips, uh, ask your father 
to explain it to you, you know? It's one of those horribly embarrassing things when somebody speaks in a way that you can tell that they are absolutely oblivious to how often other people can see their sin through what they say. And so if your father, your mother, or your older brother and sister, older, older children, it is your job, it is your duty to teach your younger brothers and sisters the nature of their sin and to lead them into godliness. It's not just your mother and fathers. How on earth can we have a lot of children if the older children are not helping the younger children to see their sin? And mothers and fathers, uh, as long as your older children are not doing it in a dictatorial and manipulative way, rejoice when they try to teach their younger siblings. You wouldn't get angry if they tried to teach them to read. And so why would you get angry if they try to teach them to honor the name of God? Well, when we realize what our sins are, it does cause us to be very, very scared about praying to God and to think, I can't pray the way I should. I'm a man of unclean lips. But God has touched the Christian's lips with the coal and has removed the uncleanness. It's not that it's not in us anymore, but it's that God does rejoice in us praying to him and giving him praise. And honestly, let me tell you, it's true that often, uh, I think the reason that we all miss being in church is because joining with God's people in worship and singing and in prayer, (laughs) it's like when we're doing it, we know we were made for that. And we know that that may be the the, the best time in the week because it's the time in the week that there are the most protections against sin. And so that's why all of us are mourning not being able to get together. And by God's grace, I'm hoping in another couple of weeks, we'll be back together. And what joy that will be. Max was asking before the service whether he should talk uh, to you all about uh, the need to, uh, to have hope that we will be able to have the Lord's Supper together again. Not just the Lord's Supper, but prayer and singing to the glory of the name of God. Hallowed be his name. I'm going to finish with two things. One is question 190 of the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it's the question on this petition, hallowed be thy name. And so the question is, what do we pray for in the first petition? And that petition is, hallowed be thy name. And the answer is, in the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition. In other words, that we're not capable, we don't have the ability, and that we're not even disposed. You know, we don't even want to. That's what indisposition is. That is, in ourselves and all men to honor God aright. We're indisposed and incapable of honoring God rightly. We pray then that God would, by his grace, make us able and incline our hearts and others' hearts to know, to acknowledge, and to highly esteem him. His titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, his works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by and to glorify him in thought, word, and deed.
that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, you know, oaths and using his name for jokes, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, and by his overruling providence, direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And finally, Calvin on prayer says this. He says the sum of the whole is, in other words, when you add everything up, it must be our desire that God may receive the honor which is his due, that men may never think or speak of him without the greatest reverence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the name that you have revealed yourself to us through all the names. We thank you for jealous. We thank you for holiness. We thank you for truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that we will make your name holy in everything we do, and that we will not receive any glory to ourselves, but that we will give it all to you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.